Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. Friends, this week I have a conversation between myself and Bobby Bambry. Bobby is a certified dog behavior consultant and the director of education at Behavior Vets. Bobby and I were intended to be joined by Dr. Kathy Murphy, who's a veterinary surgeon and a neuroscientist and the chief scientific officer at Behavior Vets. Due to some scheduling issues, Dr. Murphy was not able to join us, but I'll be sure to get her on the podcast at a later date. Bobby and I sat down to discuss the Resilience Rainbow, which is a framework for supporting our dogs through their behavior concerns, their sport lives, or just their regular lives. She's an agility competitor like me, and so it was really fun to jam with her about just all things resilience in our favorite pets. Enjoy. All right. Welcome to the podcast. Will you start by sharing your name and pronouns? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. My name is Bobby Bambry. I identify as she and her. Bobby, we are here today to talk about resilience. And what an exciting topic. I think it's important for us to start with a definition and kind of mm. start with what resilience is. So can you share what maybe what the standard definition is, what your thoughts are on it? Like that what is resilience? Yes, so the standard definition neurobiologically is the individual's ability to recover from and resist the negative effects of stress. So it's uh, the ability to bounce back from stressors. And that's how I typically view it as well. It's, you know, stress is everywhere. There, you know, your body's reacting um, in a way that neurobiologically appears as stress or is stress, even if I'm Mm -hmm. like super excited, like... I'm super excited to speak, be speaking to you right now. So I'm sure my HPA axis is like doing its thing, my nervous system. Um, and yet I'm happy and excited to be here, right? I'm not just feeling scared or, or, or um, feeling threatened in any way. It's just, to you, Sarah, you're, I don't feel threatened by you. <laughs> it's like, Good. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> yeah, but it's, so it's just the ability to um, bounce back from that or have resistance towards it. And that would apply in instances of yucky or happy stress. Yeah. Like we need to bounce back from both really. Like if you are super worn out by this conversation, even though you enjoyed it, you know, I, I suppose maybe a higher resilience individual would be ready to roll, ready to do kind of whatever the next thing is. And then maybe, a lower resilience individual. Like I, I don't know if I want to talk about myself and my resilience, but basically I think of it as, you know, maybe needing a little bit more recovery time. Like it's okay to need recovery time from, from anything. So what's the difference? Like if bounce back is what we're talking about, if ability to kind of recover from a stressful event, whether it's Mm -hmm. um, something we like or something we don't like, but it's a stressful event is that kind of ratio of time, like the amount of time something takes to recover from, does that factor into this definition? Yeah. Maybe you so, do recover, but it takes a while or it takes yeah. special things. 
that's part of like the resistance to the negative effects of stress as well right okay yeah so um you know when i first started doing webinars in 2020 and i remember yeah like it was like pandemic everyone was working virtually wearing vaccines and i remember the first time i did it was actually a full day seminar so not only was i just like stressed about this i'm presenting and there's a ton of people that signed up because it was still like such a new concept to do like education online fully like this and it was a saturday and i'm co-presenting with like dr leish christensen and dr kathy murphy and although kathy and i are friends i'm still like you're i'm not worthy so there's all that and then the landscaper showed up and my dogs were downstairs barking because the landscaper i'm like why are the landscapers here on saturday and i remember like i wanted to cry i had to present um my i'm just sharing a lot now my armpits were like sweaty i had to change my shirt afterwards Mm -hmm. and then after i was done with my section when the next presenter i think it was like dr christensen was next i just started bawling I was like yelling at my poor husband to like quiet the dog, like close the windows. And then I, you know, and all of that drama around, you know, just because I was so stressed. And the funny thing now is that like tech can go out nowadays or I could forget my words or I'm like, oh, wow, that didn't play my present. Or, you know, there's noise outside again, like the neighbor's dog is barking. I don't even bat an eyelash anymore. It doesn't affect me. Mm. I'm completely fine. In and and so that is I have become resilient to presenting virtually, and I can handle like whatever comes my way. Um, okay. And it almost makes me laugh at times when I share like, I you know, it was almost a, it was a trial by fire in the sense, but I also because I was having this conversation around resilience have. I do very specific things to support uh, recovering from stressful events, you know, regularly throughout the week, sometimes in the moment, sometimes that day, depending on the event itself, which has helped me. So it's not just the experience and exposure and habituation, but it's also I'm doing these things actively to support my body and my brain. And I think that that's kind of, that's it. Like, that's what we're here to talk about. That's the golden ticket. It's not about just plain exposure yeah it's about other ways that we can support if we're talking about a dog other ways that we can support them to help them be not only more resilient to not only more as you said to not only have that great bounce back but also that resistance to those negative effects Mm -hmm. which goes with the bounce back like it's really important to have both sides of that coin. So um, you, along with Dr. Kathy Murphy, who was supposed to be with us today, we're, we're very sad. This is my fault. <laughs> <laughs> we, we rescheduled a lot of times. <clears throat> it, you guys have kind of produced this framework called the Resilience Rainbow. Will you talk about what that is? Yeah, so she and I have been having a conversation around resilience for over 10 years. We've been friends for over 10 years. I think it's like 12 years now. And um, we met at a time in our lives that there was a lot of transition, a lot of change. I personally was um, had just, 
in the middle of a divorce, been separated for a year. And um, so I think both of us were exploring resilience for ourselves and recovering from stress and, Mm. uh, and doing, and so we were having these really interesting conversations and she's a neuroscientist. So Mm -hmm. the conversations were all about, you know, our brain and like how we're like perceiving events in the environment, perceiving conversations from other people, like how is it impacting us? Um, and then, you know, she was in <clears throat> academia for very, for, for most of her career has been in academia. And most of my career has been, you know, a practitioner. I worked in shelters as a trainer, behavior consultant. I've had my own business. I've had, I do dog sports, agility. So I, and I was, it was really like 10 years ago for me, eight years ago for me, where resilience became a conversation because I was living it with my dog. I got a dog. His name is Marvel. He's a Jack Russell Yorkie mix. I wanted to do agility with him, which I've done. He was about a year and a half. And I just started to see a lot of change in his behavior. He was becoming aggressive. He was guarding spaces. He was barking and lunging and wanting to bite people and dogs. Um, And he's seven pounds. So he's like a little flying red squirrel, like pulling at people, which was not good. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And And then I think it was about maybe seven years ago that Kathy rescued a, um, uh, Rottweiler from Romania. She was under a year. There was notable trauma. They could tell behaviorally, um, and I think there might have been some physical things that they saw. And um, so we were exploring these conversations of resilience without really calling it resilience at the time, but recognizing that in the world of dog sports for me, wanting to do agility with Marvel, and then in the world of just like having this dog rescued and now living with her with trauma we were exploring resilience and uh simultaneously and like sharing our conversations sharing our experiences at the time I was like he only had so much bandwidth to deal with this right so I'm like I'm only going to work him for this long and then I'm going to create him out of the car I'm going to do these different things because like he only has so much bandwidth. And I was really structuring through trial and error his day, his life, his world, his routine around all of that, recognizing that, you know what, I don't have to do agility with him. If we keep making progress and he's enjoying himself, I'll continue. And the moment that he's saying, like, this sucks, like, we're not going to. Because it wasn't just in the world of agility I was seeing these issues. It was everywhere. It was like people, dogs walking down the street, you know, people coming over our house, like my family, my friends, like it was everywhere. Um, and then she was having, she like, I think for the first couple of like few days, she couldn't even touch her dog without her dog having like a huge reaction, um, trying to flee because of the trauma she'd experienced. So there's no training, right? There's no like, oh, you can't pee here, and we pee out there, and don't jump on the counter, and don't chew this thing. It's like, you can't have that conversation with a dog that has trauma. And so we were looking at things neurobiologically, and, you know, having these conversations with Kathy, really sharing what I was witnessing and observing with my dog Marvel, 
um, it had seemed like the trigger stacking had gotten to the point where now I have the language where I would say his HPA axis had become so activated that it actually took almost a month for it to come back down to baseline. And all I did was go to a seminar for three days. That's all I did. He was really well cared for. Um, I would say a pretty high rate of reinforcement. Maybe he needed more. But it was just the level. And he was young. So it was like young dog stuff. I think he was a year and a half at the time. It was the, it was the duration of exposure. And it was just too much for his body at that point so and his like brain. So it was like three day, three day seminar, month long recovery period. Yeah, three days. He was he, he was created in the building. The first two days he was great. Like any person that was there, he was like, "Hey, give me cookie, give me cookie." And then day three, he was barking at everybody, at everything. I was like, "Who is this dog? I don't understand what's happening." And, um, this sounds like me on like day three of being in transit or like <laughs> traveling or like any, anything difficult. Like I fully relate, fully relate. Yeah. And it was just, you know, there's no like counter conditioning happening there. Right. There's no like, Oh, you see the person over there? You get cookies. Let's move farther back. Right. It was just yeah beyond all of that. And so that's what started the exploration for me in terms of looking at resilience. Again, I didn't have the language at the time. And now, and now that I've had really explored the language with Dr. Murphy and the concepts and the neuro, the neuroscience, the biology in the last couple of years, especially so since she's joined behavior vets, I, um, in retrospect, have a very clear understanding of how this happened and what what I know to do right away versus, you know, the trial and error that I did at the time to support him. Yeah. So things that you could have done literally on day one at the seminar, but also in the weeks and months leading up to like, it's, it's yeah, in life. It's not yeah. just, yeah. I, I do think that most people would like a magic recipe to implement for their weekend so the dog yeah. can like get through agility and I have bad news for them. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not exactly how it works. It has to be, has to be kind of constant. Like I find that when we, and I'm going to have you talk about some of these things, these action steps, sure. when we, when we utilize a lot of these action steps, it has to become kind of part of the dog's expectation in their worldview. Like if they can expect that things are safe and that you have their back and that all their needs are going to be met. And I'm not saying that the dog, like, sits like journals at night about that we actually had <laughs> but I do mean that there's like a level of um relaxation that just sort of occurs when they mm -hmm. show up they're really on edge like you were talking about Dr. Murphy's dog she adopted that was just completely terrified and on edge and had to get to a place where they trusted that bad things were not just going to keep happening right and that good good things were going to happen and I think I'm like diving into the one of the first points in the resilience rainbow, which is predictability. But let's go through kind of what those points are and, you know, spend as much time on them if you want, but maybe name them all for us and yeah. then we'll kind of go back through and see what some of those look like. Yeah. So there's no particular order. It's not like one is better than the other or less than yeah. or first or whatever. It's we just put them in the rainbow. And I said to I like 
it's just, this is truly how the order has been listed. It's because whatever just fit in the colors, because some of the <laughs> domains are longer, you know, than mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> when we created it. Um, so more more than often than not, you're working across all the domains or more than one, essentially. And it's not, I want people to understand, it's not like you need to have this in place to have this in place, like it can happen simultaneously for the dog. Yeah. Um, and... And there's so many different concepts, exercises, methodologies, like management techniques that can fall under one or more of these domains. This is just simply a way to really understand, like, am I conditioning resilience? Am I supporting and maintaining resilience? Like, how am I supporting my dog so that, you know, life stressors, regardless of what life looks like or where you live or where they live, is you're supporting them as best as possible. And all of this research, it's it's based on human literature. It's based on mm-hmm. um, other species literature. And so the domains are decompression, safety and security, completing the stress cycle, mental and physical well-being, predictability, social support, and agency. Excellent. And I think that we could tear apart each one of these as individuals but let's not spend the next three hours doing that because I think we really easily could but I love mentioning like these things go together it's not like you have to have this one before you can have the next one like Mm. the mental the the physical well-being piece if the dog's got an injury or pain for some reason you can start addressing that and have that not be fixed or cured and I'm putting that in quotations while you get to work on kind of those other, those other pieces. Absolutely. So many of these things take so much time, but talk, I have kind of two main questions that I think people will have. One is something that I've talked about before that people get a little bit hung up on predictability and agency existing at the same time. Mm -hmm. So like if I'm in charge of things and therefore provide you with a very clear routine that you can predict and you're following the routine every single day, aren't I then also removing agency? Aren't I then controlling all the outcomes for the dog all the time? And this gets a little bit tricky. And I didn't tell you that I was going to ask you this. So <laughs> but I think, but I think we can have a really good conversation because I believe firmly that they're not the same thing. And of course they can both exist at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So for example, well, one of the things is routine, I want to point out, and the neuroscience tells us routine or like a rigid routine is not necessarily helpful and it can actually be boring. Um, so a little bit of variety is really good because the brain, again, is looking for patterns, but the variety keeps things interesting and um, exciting. Predictability. In, so let's say I have a training session, right? And I have a puppy right now. So I'm going to say, well... I'm, we're going to work in this particular, I want to like foot shape a foot targeting, you know, I have a a four month old. So I'm like, okay, we're going to shape this foot targeting and we're building it so that over the course of say like two or three sessions, I'm able to now kind of like send him from like two feet away to the foot target and come back to me. I can create moments of agency woven in, in that, in that training session. So for example, we're training, we're training. And if at any point he says like, I don't want to do this right now, or I can't do this right now. Well, one, I have to assess, 
what's going on that he can't do this right now? Like, am, is the criteria too hard? Have I not split the criteria enough? Have I gone on too long? Maybe he needs moments to decompress. Maybe he needs moments of agency, which is part of decompression sometimes for the dog. That's the first thing I'm noting. He's not being naughty. It's really looking at like, what have I, how have I set up the environment? How have I, like, did I accidentally drop some treats? Is my other dog there, right? So these are things that I have to consider if my dog does that. Now, let's say I've set up like the perfect training and setup, like everything in the environment is supporting the dog to learn what I'm and practice what where my goal is, which is I want to send you from three feet away to foot target and come back to me. I, I will, and I've learned to become a better trainer over time. And so I will set up moments of agency where let's say I'm using treats and then I'll say, okay, we're going to have like after four or five sends with treats, I'm going to do some tugging, 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 and then I'm going to let go of the toy. And what do you want to do? Oh, you want to bring it back to me? Cool. We'll tug, tug, tug. I'll let go again. What do you want to do? Or we'll tug, 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 and then I'll ask him to out by trading uh, some food. We'll go back to the shaping. Or maybe when I let go of the toy, he takes a lap. Or he just lays Mm -hmm. down and chews it and squeaks it. Those are all moments of agency, but also he's potentially taking a decompression moment. Like maybe that was hard to shape. And this is where the resilience conditioning comes into play where, because all of this that's happening is neurobiological. Like it's, yes, there's conscious choices being made and the learning is happening and the practice is happening. And there are no neurobiological processes that if I were to keep going forward and then maybe I, I do like 10 reps with 10 treats that could be too much for a puppy that's four months old, potentially. Uh, and that buildup of pressure of, uh, can be stressful for them, even if they're getting treats, even if they're getting toys, even if they're enjoying the time with you and the engagement, because it's neurobiological. So these little breaks also give me an opportunity to learn my puppy. And but over time, he's not going to need the breaks to be as often. And then in lots of situations, they don't even need it until the end of a training session. So lots of times with Funky, who's two and a half turning three in July, he can go, like, we can do, like, a half-hour private session. And he's like, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do Yeah, I don't need a break. I'm like, dude, why don't you take a break while I walk the course? No, no, no. Let's do this. Let's do this, right? Because, but when he was younger, he definitely needed it. When he was still learning and practicing his skills and getting better, he needed those breaks where I would throw the ball and then he's like, I need a lap or I'm going to lay down and chew my ball for a while. Mm-hmm. And so there's, so I'm looking and giving him moments of agency. And then away from the training environment, like the next day or later that day, we're going to go for a walk in the woods or we're going to go in the backyard and you do whatever you want. Or now that Funky, for example, is three years old, I will have, like, he can go wherever he wants in the house. He can lay on my bed. He can lay on the couch downstairs. He can come in my office with me, where the puppy has more rules because he's four months old, right? He's in my crate in my office right now behind me. And so they can practice agency in so many different ways, and you can have predictability as well, like whether it's in a training session or in your day. And that's where it's woven in and also, the domains are often, you know, you're working over more than one domain. I think that, and I love it. Thank you. That was a fantastic, detailed response. And I think that what it keeps coming back to for me 
is that I'm the thing that's predictable. Yeah. I think in my work with dogs, that tends to be the most important thing. Yeah. My dogs do have a lot of variety in their life. And so it's not so much about having this like really strict routine, although there are certainly things that pretty much happen every single day. Yeah. But if I'm, if I'm the one that's predictable, like in that training session, I'll predictably give you breaks. Like I will predictably offer you moments to choose to re-engage this loop of reinforcement or to take your reinforcer over there. If I'm the one that's predictable, that tends to give me the best outcomes behaviorally. Yeah. Versus, versus, you know, maybe I'm working with a client and they're, they have a hard time being predictable because and that's hard yeah that's hard so tough right because of maybe they've got their own personal stuff going on everybody does but also maybe they've got some trauma going on with this dog like maybe this dog has been really hard for them for a lot of different reasons and they don't think like this is kind of a it's a two-way street although i wouldn't like sit the dog down and be like listen you need to be more predictable um (laughs) but if the person doesn't think that they can rely on the dog's behavior being predictable, like I'm sure you've worked on cases, aggression mm. cases, for instance, where it's maybe coming from like dogs in pain or dog has like triggers that are hard for people to see or identify. This is really tough for people to provide then that dog with either agency or predictability because they're afraid yeah. of not like they're not getting it in return. So this is kind of this like, global cyclical like everybody needs all of these things not just the dogs yeah I find that if i if i predictably offer them agency in especially in our training sessions and then i certainly offer them i predictably also offer them opportunities to decompress whether that looks like running around squeaking the toy in your mouth or whether that looks like a hike in the woods that we took the day before the agility trial to make sure that you were in a nice, good headspace. I think talking about it like that versus these kind of, these very contrived, like, which can certainly sometimes be necessary, but these very contrived, like at five o'clock you eat dinner. And before I prepare, before I prepare your dinner, I inform you that I'm going to start making your dinner. Like, I don't know. It doesn't need to be that that way. That would spell disaster in my household. Um. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I learned the hard way. Like, there's certain words I'm never going to teach my dog. Like, like dinner, food, eating. Like like dinner. Squirrel. (laughs) Yeah, we're never going to say squirrel. Yeah, (laughs) we're never going to say those words. (laughs) (laughs) We just don't. I get it. We don't don't talk about, we don't talk about those things. And we don't talk about Bruno. Yeah, we don't talk about Bruno or dinner around dog. So I think that when you say predictability, people can get into a very rigid, contrived place with it. And it's more about being, I think Kim Brophy says, a place the dog can hang their hat. Like, Yeah, I like that expression. Right? Like being that thing that they can count on. Right, because if we're... and, And the thing about predictability is that, like, the world is unpredictable, For example, you said that um, you were talking about uh, aggression. So I used to work in New York City and see clients in person, you know, for most of my career. God bless. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Let me just say. Um, And the, that is really where I started to explore when I started working at Behavior Vets, especially five years ago, almost five years ago now, 
that I'm like, wow, like we are not really making any progress, even with medication on board for these dogs, right? Like minimal, minimal progress. In this dog is still environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's why the I dog said, is... God bless because the environment <laughs> is not good for dogs. Like it's for it's the vast majority of dogs, it's going to be really hard for them. Yeah. It's unpredictable. And so there are things that we can do, which is like why I'm a big fan of Leslie McDavid, right? So her pattern games, like there's things that we can do to like ritualize experiences, create patterns, or play these actual pattern games in these unpredictable environments. And so I love this one case that I had. I love this dog, um, Remy. I've done a couple. He's been featured in a couple of our webinars and seminars because it is such an... He was a, he was one where I was really exploring, you know, like resilience in New York City, and um, they got him. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, but he was found emaciated. He was like eight months old. This pit bull clearly traumatized and starving. With a, a friend had found him that worked for the rescue, and then this really lovely couple adopted him. But he lived in the middle of like, like the West Village, like he just was in this really busy urban area with a ton of dogs, a ton of people. And he was so hypervigilant outside and barking and lunging at dogs. Um, I, he did bite someone's pants who like ran by him pretty quickly. Um, so it was, it was really, and when I first met him, I thought, oh my God, like, he, he's like all that he's doing is watching everything else like he's not connecting with us he is no it didn't matter we had meatballs in our hand it did not matter you know and so we so one of the things that we did over time is not just introduce the pattern games like the Super Bowl game for him was his jam it created predictability in an unpredictable environment it was this visual target so it and this is something I learned from Dr. Murphy, that when you are anxious, your eyes do this, I think it's like this katata thing where it goes back and forth, back and forth. You're looking, 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 looking. But what that does is it just, you have to do that because you're anxious, because you need to make sure you're safe. But you end up actually increasing the activity in the HPA axis at the same time by becoming hypervigilant, but you need to be hypervigilant because so it's this vicious it's, cycle. It, don't you feel like that's, an, you know, if she were here, she could probably go deeper, but there are yeah. so many behaviors that feel that way to me that are that vicious cycle. Yeah. Like barking, barking sometimes being one of them. Like I'm absolutely, I'm having a response. I'm needing to have a response to my environment and that response is barking. And then sometimes I can bark myself into a complete wreck. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And so these visual targets of the plates, for example, we brought paper plates out to the park because um, it was just easier with paper plates. And so to bring out instead of bowls, like so to play on the paper plates and giving him these two visual targets or three visual targets, he was able to really focus on what was in front of him and then take in the environment, come back to the plate, take in the environment, come back to the plate. So the Super Bowls game for him was so incredible. And then we gave him experiences of agency and decompression, opportunities for decompression while working with him in that environment. So uh, we would go along the fence line where all the leaves were collected, 
right at the park. We met, met at Riverside Park. He was in a muzzle. Um, we worked away from the people, but he could still see the people. Like we were deep in some green space, but there he could see the people about 50 feet away on the path. And we gave him breaks where you, he, we said, okay, Remy, you decide where you want to sniff. You lead us. The only time we limited his, um, his movement is if we got too close, not too close, but you know, we thought, okay, well that might put him over a threshold if we're near that person or near that dog. And we worked together between medication, resilience, conditioning, you know, training different skill sets. Um, he is at the point now, it's been, I haven't worked with them in God, like maybe 10 months or a year. They're doing so well. So it was like two years of working together. He's made new, a couple new dog friends. He doesn't need his muzzle. It's been like two, two, oh, almost three years, two and a half years since there was like any kind of bite incident. It was just that first one. Um, he's doing so well. He's not hyper vigilant on his walks. He's really relaxed, you know. And we also, well, we oh, this is the other thing that we did. Anytime he went for a walk, we gave him an, uh, the ability to um, come back down and decompress after a walk, even if it wasn't a training session. So literally every single walk, he would come back in because what his uh, guardians noticed is that when they came home. Even if they were out for like 20, 30 minutes for a walk, they said, oh my God, he's like hyper is how they described it. He would be like ricocheting and zooming around the apartment. And I said, that's not him having a good time. That's a stress response. He's struggling. You know, he's trying to recover from, even if the walk was uneventful, meaning he didn't bark or charge, lunge at any dog, because you're, you're doing a really good job managing him and using the treats and he has all these tools he's still having a stress response. And so we started to, every time he came back, he got like three to four minutes of snuffle mat time. And that's, it just completely changed his behavior. He was able to decompress mm. after those walks. So he is doing so well now. That's awesome. That's so exciting to hear. And so exciting that that much was able to be done in that case by yeah. putting these things to play. I think it's so important for anybody to hear who might work on these tough cases with dogs that live in environments that are simply hard for them, that certainly the support of a veterinary behavior team, because meds, meds, like we love drugs for these situations, yeah. but also just these opportunities to like, this isn't dog training. This is, this is welfare. This is looking this at is this welfare. from a welfare, from a we yeah. welfare place, which is actually what our job is. Number one. And being so clever to think of, yeah, okay, here's where all the leaves are collected. So that's going to be a great sniffy place. So we're going to let you go sniff along that side. Um, and then Super Bowls, which if anybody's not seen it, it's, you know, you put a treat on the bowl and you walk to the next bowl and put a treat on that bowl. And it's so the dog kind of has these targets that they can head for. And I yeah. like that visual of him being able to kind of take in the environment, but then like it sucked back into the bowl and then get to yeah. take in the environment and then go back in. So they're kind of, he's kind of volleying in and out and not yeah. um, just staying up in that really heightened space. Yeah. On, in the kind of framework, the resilience rainbow framework, you also <clears throat> have this, and I think you, you started, you've talked about this a little bit as talking about Remy, this concept of completing the stress cycle huge fan of the book burnout yes um the nagoski sisters actually had emily nagoski on the podcast which was like a pivotal career moment for me um, <laughs> yeah um talk about what that means what does it mean to complete yeah. the stress cycle 
So I read, I heard them on Brene Brown. Right. I guess it was like 2020, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe 20, was- I think it was 2020. It was definitely 2020 because that's when we were all the most stressed. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's when, it, when it really hit the mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, and so I, you know, so for years I, I was a yogi practitioner and like the mind-body connection and so so much of what they were saying I was like oh this makes so much sense and I was like wait this is what we do with dogs like this makes so much sense this is what I'm doing in dog sports this is what I'm doing with Marvel like this is the exploration oh my god I have the words now even though this is for humans and I said okay how does this apply for dogs like how do we like what am I doing that helps them complete the stress cycle so I started to think about it in these different ways And then I started to live it myself because I was so stressed. I felt Mm -hmm. like we were pivoting here at Behavior Vets. We were trying to, we went from like an in-person exclusively service to like, oh my God, how do we keep our jobs and keep this company afloat? And we were all working ridiculous hours and it was like we were in the trenches and like the adrenaline was going and I thought, okay, this is bad. Because I heard that podcast and I was like, I've got to make sure that I'm doing what I need to do, that I don't like have adrenal burnout, right? I'm going to get sick. And so completing the stress cycle is essentially like, again, your HPA axis is activated. And when it's activated, if, if you're feeling threatened, if the brain is perceiving threat, then your body could go into fight, flight, freeze fidget fawn response so one of the f responses and you have to do certain things to help your body because your brain could say oh yeah yeah my brain knows that i'm safe i'm sitting here having this conversation in sarah with sarah on in my office like i'm totally safe but my body might not feel that way if maybe i don't know like i heard a big bang or something scary happened or i had a fight with my my husband right before our 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 podcast recording right like not that we did he's lovely but if we did right so my body might feel like oh my god we are not safe and it can take a really long time for it to be convinced that we're safe and so in completing the stress cycle and that's here's the thing about everything in our world like chronic stress right so if you keep experiencing the body keeps experiencing this kind of stress, like I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe. So this is a threat, this is a threat. It all, it starts to change the neurobiology of your brain and body. It starts to, and then that chronic stress leads to mental and physical illnesses, disease, so many different things if it just keeps building in the body. And, and And the thing is that what I've learned from Dr. Murphy is that the more that your body and brain stay in that state, the more susceptible you are. Like you can't resist the negative effects of stress anymore. You just get triggered like that, like that, Mm. like that. And so there are things that you can do to complete the stress cycle. And that's what the book goes into that the Nagowski sisters did with the research that they did. So it's like looking at, I love it. Like having a really good cry. Like there are times mm-hmm. where I'm like, and, and since reading the book, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to watch. Oh, you watch a trigger movie. You watch one of the cry movies. Yes. 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 What's that movie? <laughs> oh my God. Dear Evan Hansen. 
My sister told instance. me to watch, yes, Dear Evan Hansen. She's like, watch it. It's good. I was like, I know the storyline. I'm going to cry. I just can't watch it. And then one, and this was about, I think, seven or eight months ago. I was like, oh, God, I need a good cry. I'm going to watch Dear Evan Hansen. And I'm going to keep it on my list. And, and you just like, get it done. Also, yeah. laughter. Laughter. On the, on the kind of the same tone. Having that, yeah. like, I went to a comedy show with a couple of friends a, a couple months ago and, like, laughed so hard. And we were all laughing so, and it just felt so good. Like, it's not like Doesn't a it? chuckle at no. at a random thing, although that's lovely. But like that full belly laughter of like, you almost think you can't breathe, like that kind of laughing. Yeah. Like your face that's, hurts. Yes. Yeah. It totally completes that stress cycle. And there are so many reasons that these actions kind of do that. Mm-hmm. Physical activity also completes the stress cycle. It always that's makes me wonder, go-to. Bobby about same but it always makes me wonder about these dogs like you mentioned Remy had the zoomies when he got home yeah it makes me feel like that's what they're doing like, yeah not that they not that they read the book and know but that their body is telling them like we I gotta to run around like the, the yeah. lion is behind us like we gotta run around and so they just yeah. like really really do and you can provide them another way to do it that doesn't then amp them in that that vicious cycle like we were talking about sometimes happens like yeah. giving them the snuffle mat or a nose work game or something like that so i do think wow what an important part of this framework to be thinking about ways that we can kind of and when we say complete the stress cycle that's because stress like happens in a cycle in in the body it's not a it's not like a one-off event it doesn't yeah. just like it doesn't like happen and then is over it's um, a it's it's like it builds up and then it comes back down and each person's mm-hmm. baseline is different and the very cool thing an individual dog the very cool thing is if you're doing this work the baseline can be lowered so and how you cool can is ha- that i mean right like and that's the ability. kind of the whole point. That's what you're talking yeah. about here. Yeah. 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 The I my dog Topper, I mean, his whole like he was um fearful at agility trials, like sound sensitive, overwhelmed by the environment. Loves the game, but the trial environment, the competition environment yeah. was a lot. It has been through resilience work that that he can now compete consistently at trials. Like I'm still doing small trials. I'm going to start doing bigger trials, but there's no, like I can't systematically desensitize and counter condition like every single thing that's happening at a trial. Like you just can't do that. And so his baseline is lower than where lower than where it was a year ago, for example. And then some dogs like genetics, actually absolutely plays into this as well right so some dogs genetically like my dog funky just has a a lower baseline than topper did or topper does for example absolutely like we have you have different places that you can start from for sure Mm -hmm. and then and then different places you can go and i appreciate you mentioning that you can't desensitize and counter condition in so many of these scenarios. Yeah. When I think of where those kinds of approaches can be effective, it is so much in a clearly identifiable, isolated trigger yeah. versus versus the entirety of the agility trial. Like you got, right. you've got the judge yelling, you've got stressed out people, stressed out dogs, you've got weird acoustic environments. Like they're all... Yep. Most of them are really nightmarish for dogs that are sound sensitive, which is why it's 
remarkable that border collies are so popular, which is not because they're not suffering, <laughs> but is simply because how good because of how much they value doing the thing, and so they will do yeah. it even yeah. if the rest of it is really hard for them. So talk a little bit about how you know that you have altered that baseline. What's our evidence? Like, how do we know that this stuff we're doing is working? Yeah, so in the moment, you can you can measure resilience in a few different ways, right? So I'm looking at, and so Dr. Murphy, she's hilarious, but also very scientific because of her work. So she can measure her dog's respiratory rate and like she count, like she like, counts and then has like that on record so she that's one way I don't do that <laughs> I just watch their body so I'm looking at like how fast did their rib cage go in and out when they're breathing what is the you know are they looking around are they hyper vigilant are they scanning where is their attention is it more on me what are the ear sets doing if and if they are looking at me um, you know, pupils, how big are they? Are they dilated? Are they constricted? The the quality of the panting, right? Is it panting because just you're, you know, you walk into a competition environment and the dogs temp- typically start panting because they're getting excited, right? But is it, are, are, you know, again, excited, but then is it too much in terms of the arousal, right? Like, are they going too high and then it becomes unhealthy for them and they could potentially struggle with in the in terms of their performance as well, right? So you're looking at the quality of the panting. Look, what does the facial muscles look like? What do the body muscles look like? And all of that. And then in terms of over the course of time, the best way to talk about this, I would say, is like, I'll go back to the Remy example in terms of his resilience improving and so it wasn't just the respiratory rate and all of that that we were measuring we were looking at if there was a reaction because maybe he was surprised he turned a corner and there was a person or a dog or someone like Brett almost ran into them because they live in New York City right and you can't counter and condition and desensitize an entire city (laughs) we looked at like okay he's going to have a reaction right and that's one of the things I talked about I talk about with my clients that do work in these kinds of environments or live in these kinds of environments that are challenging. And I'm like, listen, you're going to deal with reactions. They're just going to be there. What we're going to look at is how severe was it? How significant was it? What does he do right afterwards? How quickly can he come back to you, recover, right? You know, do you have, will he engage with you in the games that we've played, like the pattern games? Can he come right back to a pattern game for you or right back to um, connecting with you in, in any way? Does he not want you to touch him in that moment? When can you touch him? Like, when is he ready to be touched? Right? And so those are some of the measurements that we might look at, and we track them over time. And then, you know, if the resilience is improving, you'll see that the frequency of reactivity is less potentially. In, like, the example of Remy, um, when he does, he will recover like instantaneously. I'm working with this one dog that lives, I'm working virtually with this one dog, similar issues, but they live in Canada. He's actually going to be a case study in, in the presentation for the Resilience Rainbow Tour seminar that we're doing. And so he's um, using some of similar techniques and exercises. And they live in a residential area. It's not urban, but it's really like populated, right? So it's um, a townhouse complex, Uh, a lot of people living in this area, the dog steps out of his house and he's instantly scanning, 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 right? And so 
it was really cool. We've been working together about three months now, and he is on medication. He came out of the house. He saw a dog about maybe 30 feet away, didn't react right away. And I did coach his guardian to be like, okay, that's the point we'd start working some of our pattern games because she was just like feeling pressured in the situation like, ah, what do I do? And it took him about 20 seconds before he reacted. But the amazing thing about it, it was like three like almost half-hearted barks in the direction of the other dog and then instantly came back to mom and was like walking with her and looking at her. And I said, that's incredible. Wow. That is incredible. Yeah. Right? That wasn't happening six months ago. So. Yeah. So you're really looking at the, if you're Kathy, you can um, track the respiratory rate. But if you're not. (laughs) (laughs) If you're not. (laughs) If you're not, you can, it's just like what we always talk about. It's looking at the behaviors. It's looking at what you can see. Some of yeah. the behaviors are respondent behaviors like pupil size, yeah. breathing rate, things like that. Some of the behaviors are operant behaviors like so many of the other things. How often are we reacting? How quickly are we stopping? Mm-hmm. And they're all important. They're all important to look at. And I think that kind of what you're saying is you look at where you're starting and you open your eyes to these changes. So rather than it yeah. being my dog never reacts anymore, it is... Now when my dog reacts, it's a lot more manageable. It's shorter lived and yeah. it all comes down from it faster. We've all, yeah. you know, if we work reactive cases, we've all had that case where the dog could not come down from a reaction until you got right. them like in their house away from everything. And like then, hours I mean, later, even then it would yeah. take hours. Yeah. It would take a long yeah. time for sure. I know I can be activated for a really long time if something you know, maybe something really scary happens when you're driving or something like that. I can yeah. stay activated for a really long time um, from something like that. So I understand, you know, I understand these dogs, but I'm a person. So I can put on a funny podcast. I can call a friend. I can like, I can access those things myself. To complete your stress cycle. To complete Go for a walk in the woods. Cycle. Yeah. It's, it's usually my go-to for sure. So, but if you're you're not a person, you're a dog and you don't know to access these things. Like that's where we can step in and say, this is what yeah. I'm do for you. By trying what's going to work. Like for Remy coming home to a snuffle mat was like great for him. Yeah. For and for so some many dogs, dogs, that's not going to work. They need yeah, like for a so many session. Dogs, they need to do something. Like they have to do something physical. That's so common with a lot of them. I'm that person. I need to do something physical. Like, yeah. like if I'm, you know, like I've been stressed lately. I'm also dealing with like health issues that are adding to my ability to manage stress well. And we have this tour coming up. And so I'm hitting my Peloton bike for 20 minutes several times a week to help me manage that stress, like doing cardio. I have to do, and I'm still doing my nature walks. I'm still meditating, but those things don't help the way like 20 minutes on my Peloton bike. They're different things. Working hard. Yeah. I'm actually so glad that you're saying it because a lot of my client dogs, it can't just be a decompression Mm -hmm. walk. In fact, the dogs can't go on a decompression walk unless the actual movement needs of their body have been met. Mm -hmm. So, so I've got clients sometimes who will bike jaw with the dog 
to the place where they then take their sniffy walk because if the dog doesn't sprint that mile <laughs> to that trailhead they can't even go on the sniffy walk and it's that's me under uh, that's so that's bobby everybody <laughs> she has to hit the peloton to be able to yeah, go to woods to and like to her <laughs> great so it's just it's then saying this is what this individual does best with it isn't yeah this is the prescription for everybody it's always so individual which is something that i really appreciate anybody kind of really digging into rather than you know i think that there are some universal things that are good and healthy for everybody and i think that's you know the rainbow every single thing on this rainbow is good and healthy for everybody yeah. Some of them are not as accessible without other parts of it. So yeah. like this physical movement needs to look this way for some dogs and needs to look this way for others. I know, you know, my border collies, generally speaking, cannot go on like a true decompression sniffy walk unless their bodies have actually been allowed to run and really, really move. Yeah. And it's just about it's about asking them. It's about trying it measuring it yeah trying it yeah trial and error and it changes contextually like the things that w used to work for funky my agility dog doesn't work for him anymore in the same way mm -hmm. like he used to need to race around and now he wants to lay down and chew a toy to help him mm -hmm. in moments to decompress um change, and he yeah. still needs his runs at times and then it's also yeah. contextual in terms of it can change, right? Like maybe in one environment, they do need the decompression sniffing and then in a different environment or a different event happening, they need the movement, right? It's like, so having the variety and playing with the different ways to support the dog is part of it. And then also there's the resilience conditioning aspect, but then there's the support. So let's say like, you know, with Remy, back going back to Remy, they regularly do things to support his resilience because they still live in new sure. york city right and they and i you know i te they text me now and again remy's this remy's that it's like great and then my my three dogs of that i do sports with i'm regularly doing things so my puppy it's all resilience conditioning but with funky at this time at this point i'd say it's more about resilience support he's nearly he's going to be three in the summer in july and now it's like we're you know, this is the season, the year that we're really looking at our teamwork together. So I'm constantly... You go into conditioning versus support. Yeah. So this is super cool. Resilience conditioning is not like, it's not like classical conditioning or operating conditioning. It, we're using the word conditioning in the context of like physical exertion refers to like exercising. Mm -hmm. So, or okay. think of it as like, you know, you're like increasing the strength of a performance, like a, a muscle group rather. Resilience conditioning is, is cause it's happening neurobiologically and it actually is like restructuring the brain and its brain function as well. Um, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about conditioning. So you can improve that individual's ability to resist negative of effects of stress as well as recover from stress, right? And then you're doing things to support them so that they don't lose that resilience over time. And so, we're, yeah. so looking at what I'm doing with Funky at this point is I still take the regular nature walks. I still give him opportunities to decompress before and after a run at a competition, 
right? You know, there's different things that I'm doing to make mm-hmm. sure that we're trying, you know, like we're still working on our dog walk, but, and that's hard because sometimes he gets it. Sometimes most of the time he gets it. Sometimes he doesn't, but sometimes I do things that are really challenging for him. And he's like, wow, that was a hard training session. Yeah. Okay. So like, let's do some stuff to support the resilience that you have to work this hard training session as well. I love it. I think in, in different words, but for sure, I've talked about the fact that like there is a maintenance mode to be found. It's the same with, if you're using the word conditioning, like it's used in physical conditioning in exercise, you build up to being able to, you know, run a 5k. Then once you can, you don't have to be running every day to maintain that. Yeah. There's yep. kind of, you know, there's a level that you need to keep running to maintain it, but it's not the same amount that it took to condition you there. I think yep. thinking of this that way is smart. And I think makes that pretty accessible too, for people to be able to wrap their head around. Yeah. It's not about creating associations between stimuli and responses. Right. It is like exactly what you, like that example is a really great like analogy of what it could, what conditioning is looks like what we're referring to the race example. Yeah. Excellent. I love it. So we've talked about all kinds of things. I'm sure we could talk for another hour, but we will go (laughs) ahead and wrap it up. Bobby, close us out by telling us about the resilience rainbow tour a little bit and where people can get that information. Yeah. So I imagine you'll have it in your show notes, right? I can, I will send that all to you. And so this is our first year going on the tour talking about the Resilience Rainbow, Dr. Kathy Murphy and I. It starts on May 20th and 21st. We're going to be in New Jersey, Madison, New Jersey. Then on uh, May 27th and 28th, we're going to be in Nova Scotia, Canada. And then, yeah, it's like a whirlwind. I feel like we're a band. I was, I was just going to say, my <laughs> gosh, that's, that's wild. Yep. This is what happens when, you know, the co-creator lives across the pond. So she has to, we have to do it all at once. Get it all done. Just Get it all spreading done. Spreading it out. That's right. That's where we're doing all the resilience work beforehand for ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Maintain uh, it through the tour. Maintain. Maintain it through the tour. June 3rd and 4th, we're going to be in Denver, Colorado. And then um, June 10th and 11th, or sorry, no, 9th and 10th, we're going to be in, I think it's 10th, 9th and 10th. We're going to be in Madison, Wisconsin. And so each weekend is an in-person opportunity. Uh, the links, um, you'll have the link, Sarah. And then we're also doing a virtual option because we've had a lot of people from around the world reach out to us and say like we really you know we get it like they can't travel here it's expensive or the ticket in-person tickets are more expensive in general and so on june 3rd and 4th when we're in denver colorado which is where behavior vets home base is we are going to also stream live and so folks can purchase the virtual ticket and they can either join us live or they'll get the recording. And and actually, anybody who signs up, whether in person or virtually, will get the recording on June. Um, yeah, third and fourth, we'll get it. And then, we, but we do want to do something special for the people who are going to be seeing us in person. We want to give them a little extra special something. So we're going to be examining case studies for each location like just folks who are attending in person can submit cases and we're going to basically look at the cases um in real time with them through this framework of 
the Resilience Rainbow um, at each location. And then also, this is special for just the folks who are joining us in person. So this will not be recorded. Each location, we're going to have a special guest. So in Madison, New Jersey, uh, Ferdi Yao is going to join us, and we're going to talk about sheltering and resilience. He's going to be we're doing a panel discussion at the end of the day on Saturday. And then uh, in Nova Scotia, we have um, two doctors that are going to be joining us there, and uh, Dr. Michelle Nicholson and Dr. Juanita. Oh, I can't remember her last name. I'll give it. It'll be in the links. Sure, we'll and put then, it all in the notes. And then in Denver, we're going to have Dr. Elise Christensen. So we're going to talk about medication and resilience. And we are still working on our Madison, Wisconsin person. So we have a couple. I don't want to say it until it's locked down. So, but we'll have someone there too. Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Bobby. And yeah. I hope everybody um, runs over and checks out the tour. And I just really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. This was really cool. The hour went so fast. It went, it went very fast. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.